When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Euston Road, where I am now, is a busy road in central London where thousands of office workers used to spend eight hours a day, five days a week. But things are a bit quieter these days. After the pandemic, not all those workers returned to their desks. And that has left the people who own the offices facing a costly problem. What to do with all that empty space? Zoe, so nice to meet you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me here. Good afternoon. My name is Zoe Bignall. I'm a Managing Director in CBRE. So Zoe, we're here at 338 Euston Road. This is a 15-odd storey steel and glass building. Originally an office building, I understand, it's been here for a few decades, but it's in the process of being repurposed in part for other uses. Absolutely. A traditional office building, it's multi-tenanted, and I'm going to take you inside and introduce two of the floors that have been repurposed from offices into lab-enabled space. Level 7. Doors opening. Yes, so here we are. There are men in lab coats. There is lots of very high-tech looking equipment here. People hard at work with microscopes. And just a few months ago, this was a regular office space. It was obviously completely different now. Could you tell us a bit about what went into that conversion? As you rightly say, it was completely open plan with desks and chairs and a central corridor. Now, lab spaces are heavily partitioned from the write-up areas. You can see the other side in the lab, the floor is very different. And there's a reason for that. The floor is more solid so that it can stop any vibrations as people walk through the space. And that's important when you're running experiments. If you turn around, you can see that there's a separate room area where you've got specific bins for hazardous waste. And can you tell us a bit about the rationale for doing this conversion? The office market, certainly since the pandemic, has been changing. The reason that this building works really well is because, importantly here, we're in close proximity to some exceptional centres of excellence with the Francis Crick Institute, Wellcome Trust, UCL. And that's why this type of transition from offices to labs works in this location. That said, 
there are buildings in certain pockets of London, they just don't work because you're not near a transport interchange, you're not near centres of excellence. And so how are developers thinking about repurposing those types of buildings? So they're looking at alternative uses in the growth sector, so residential, and that's not just private residential, that's built to rent, it's student accommodation, it's co-living, but also hotel type uses as well. So uh, maybe we should leave the scientists to work then. Zoe, thank you so much for showing us around today. Thank you. In London, investors like CBRE have already plunged billions of pounds over the past few years into repurposing vacant office spaces for a variety of uses. That is a trend that is happening all over the world and promises to transform the shape of cities. But will it be enough to save them from the rise of remote working You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In Washington, DC, I'm Alice Forward. And in today's show, are cities in peril? First, we hear how the rise of cities was interrupted by the pandemic. Offices emptied out, shops closed, and a lot of remote workers fled for suburban lives. Then we explore what remote working will look like in the future. Fully remote, five days a week. This appears to lower productivity. The research data looks like maybe minus 10%, but there's a big range. And finally, we look at what struggling cities like San Francisco must do to avoid a death spiral. The first thing is to make sure the knowledge workers feel they can go back to the office without having to run through an open-air fentanyl market. Hey, Mike. Hey, Alice. Hello. Hi, Tom. So, Mike, how does it feel to be in the world's second most successful city? Well, it depends what we're talking about. I'd say it's pretty close to first place if we're talking about food, maybe a little lower down the rankings if we're talking about the weather. Singapore doesn't make it into first place? Well, not according to The Economist's ranking of major cities based on their performance over the past three years, which looks at things like population and economic growth, office vacancies and house prices. And this topic is particularly pertinent at the moment because there's been a lot of chatter around how cities like San Francisco have been really struggling post-pandemic. But, you know, cities are a pretty diverse bunch and places like Singapore have been doing a lot better. So, Mike, who do you think Singapore lost out to then for first place? Well, Singapore definitely seems like the obvious choice in East and Southeast Asia to me. Given commodity prices, I'm wondering about maybe somewhere in the Middle East. It was actually somewhere on Alice's beat, Miami. Miami. I mean, it does have lovely beaches. I must say, when I started out doing the Wall Street gig in 2019, I really didn't expect to spend so much of my time, if any, there. But it sucked up an enormous amount of talent away from New York and Greenwich, Connecticut. And that used to just be this billionaire bosses of financial companies. So people like Thomas Pettifee of Interactive Brokers, which is a brokerage firm, or Israel Englander of Millennium, which is a hedge fund. And they'd set up small offices in Florida where they also clearly wanted to live. But over the last couple of years, you've seen all kinds of financial firms set up real presence there. So Citadel runs an enormous trading floor. There are dozens of VCs. There was a sort of trickle of movement to Miami. The pandemic seems to have turned it into a flood. 
Yeah. So my sense of what we are seeing here is that there's some cities like Miami that have really come out as net winners from the pandemic. And there are some like San Francisco that have been net losers. Then there are quite a few that are kind of in the middle, not really facing into a death spiral, but nonetheless wrestling with how to adapt to a world of hybrid work. And New York is one example of that. And London, where I am, is another And we heard at the start there that some real estate firms like CBRE are starting to repurpose offices as lab spaces. Uh, The other big opportunity a lot of cities are pursuing is converting those underutilized offices into residential apartments. But there's also been some resistance to that. So the body that runs the old City of London or the Square Mile, as it's sometimes known, has been actually quite opposed to shifting property from office space to residential use. Tom, I know this topic is something you've been thinking about for quite a while now, thinking about it enough that I believe you've gone and written a book about it. Yes. uh, Well, not to toot my horn too much, but you're right. I have co-authored a book with Oxford University's Ian Golden, which is called Age of the City. And that looks at how cities came to be such a dominant force in the economy and what the future has in store for them. But it's also a topic that we've been writing about a lot at The Economist because we're really in this moment of transition for cities, which some are navigating far more successfully than others. Yes, this moment raises all kinds of interesting questions about what cities will look like in the future. This kind of old model of a central business district surrounded by a ring of inner city neighbourhoods, then suburban neighbourhoods, and then the sprawling exurbs with everyone commuting into work every day seems pretty questionable now. So I suppose the idea here is to turn all of those underused office buildings into apartments or labs or other useful things. Well, that's the gamble that a lot of property firms are taking. And someone at The Economist who's been following that quite closely is our global property correspondent, Vingero Mkendawere, and I want to bring her in here. Vingero, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to be here. So before the pandemic, cities were on something of a bull run. Can you tell us a bit about what that looked like from a property perspective? The house prices had been shooting up for years, particularly in the gentrifying inner city areas. On top of that, commercial property in cities like London was being snapped up for record prices. And then, of course, the pandemic struck. And now with fewer people going into the office five days a week, some cities seem to be struggling to adapt. Can you tell us a bit about what you're seeing? Yes. Well, as we know, the pandemic transformed cities overnight. Offices emptied out, shops closed, and a lot of remote workers fled for suburban lives, and that's had a huge impact on footfall. San Francisco has been one of the hardest hit cities, and there are huge issues there, particularly around homelessness. Around 1% of the population there is homeless. And that's for a number of reasons, including high property prices and a slump in the tech sector. So unsurprisingly, the commercial property market there has struggled to adapt. All of this leaves city budgets exposed. We know that tax revenues from commercial property help fund public services like schools or rubbish collection. And cities also need to address the loss of income for restaurants and retailers and a host of other businesses that rely on city workers like dry cleaners or gyms. So it's a huge concern. You mentioned um, San Francisco there, which is in some respects, both the best and the worst case study of the problems affecting cities, because, you know, as you said, the problems there are particularly acute and visible as a result of a number of factors, one of which is the rise of remote work, but also, you know, we've seen a significant downturn in the tech sector that's heavily impacted 
San Francisco in particular. Now, how are cities around the world responding to the shifting patterns of demand? Let's start with the developers. A lot of them are trying to change the way that they use their space by converting office blocks into residential or other purposes like hotels or labs for scientific use. But cities and policymakers are taking other defensive measures too. Many are looking to improve the quality of life. Some have added more green spaces or cycle lanes. Others have banned cars in parts of the city and opened up cities for dining and pedestrians instead. Paris is, for example, cleaning up the Seine River for swimmers ahead of the Summer Olympics next year. And other urban hubs are courting new business or making it greener to get around. So policymakers are trying to reimagine cities. Fijeri, thank you so much for coming on the show. Anytime. To get a better idea of how changing attitudes toward work are reshaping our cities, I wanted to speak to Nick Bloom. He's a professor of economics at Stanford, and he's been tracking homeworking trends for more than two decades. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Hey, thanks for having me on. So you've talked about the idea of a donut effect in cities, a kind of hollowing out of central urban areas as people use offices less, people spend less in retail destinations in central areas. Could you just start by telling us a bit more about that donut effect and what you've seen in terms of the economic impact of the COVID pandemic on cities? Yes. So over the course of the pandemic, particularly in 2020, there was a huge move of people out from city centers, mostly into the suburbs of the same city. So take an example, someone like New York, Several hundred thousand people left the center of New York, moved out to the suburbs. Why was that? You know, the explanation is kind of obvious. It's like if you've only got to come into the office, I don't know, twice a week, you can put up with a much longer commute, but you like a bigger home office or some space in the backyard. As of mid-2023, we have not seen that many people return back to city centers. I just want to spend a bit of time on the underlying driver of this, which is really the rapid uptick in in rates of remote working that was triggered by the pandemic. That's something that you've been tracking quite closely. Could you just tell us about what you're seeing in terms of the rate of remote working now? Has it stabilized? Has it continued to fall from its post-pandemic peak? Yes. So I'm going to give you data for the US, but Canada, UK, for example, look very similar to this. So before the pandemic, about 5% of days in the US will work from home. So pre-pandemic work from home existed, but it was pretty rare. April, May 2020, we see that work from home goes up to 60%. And basically, pretty much anyone that can work from home, which is pretty much all grads, were working from home and they were doing that full-time. We then see this is slowly falling back down. By summer 2023, it's about 25 26%. And it's been stable. So it really hasn't changed going back the last six to nine months. And you've been thinking for some time now about the viability of remote work. Actually, even before the pandemic struck, I think you were researching this. So what is your view on the effectiveness of remote working compared to in-person collaboration in offices? There's really two choices at this point if you're going to have any work from home. So one is hybrid. And the kind of classic vanilla version of hybrid would be, say, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, Monday, Friday, work from home. 
the research, you know, a lot of data of anecdotes from talking to companies looks like that's roughly flat on productivity, but employees really like it. So the typical number is employees value that, the ability to work from home Monday, Friday, as about the same as something like a 5 to 10% pay increase. So hybrid has become incredibly popular. There is a second version, which is fully remote. And fully remote is a very different animal. So fully remote, five days a week. This appears to lower productivity. The research data looks like maybe minus 10%, but there's a big range. The reasons appear to be it's harder to mentor, it's harder to innovate, it's harder to build culture. You may then ask, you know, why would any company have fully remote? And the reason is fully remote is dramatically cheaper. So first off, you get rid of the office, and that's about 10 to 20% of costs. And then secondly, you can hire nationally or internationally. Okay, so we've kind of reached this new equilibrium, it seems, where about 25% of days worked are being done remotely, and that's been kind of stable for some time now. What does that mean for what's happening with this donut effect in cities? Is it continuing to widen? Is it stabilizing as well? If you go back to 2021, I might have thought back then, you know, a couple of years ago that eventually people are going to return to the city centers and it will be over. We just haven't seen that. And I think what's driving it is a lot of folks moved out to the suburbs. I think the only way the donut effect is going to unwind is if employers force folks back to the office five days a week. And we just don't see that in the data. So one big picture way to look at it is to go back to kind of World War II and say, we know from World War II until about the 1980s, people were moving out to the suburbs. So cars became more common, roads got better. If you go to kind of the 1970s, or early 80s, there was a big thing of living out in the suburbs, driving in and out every day. But then from the 80s onwards, congestion got so bad that we saw this return of urbanization. So from 1980 to about 2019, the centers of European, particularly, you know, think of London or US cities, became relatively a lot more expensive. Crime fell. People moved back in. What the pandemic has done is unwound maybe 10 to 15 years of that. So it's not that radical, but it's kind of like city centers are back to maybe where they were in 2005. They're still expensive. They're still busy, but a little bit less expensive and busy relative to 2019. And so what is your longer term view on the prognosis for cities then? Will they become structurally less important for the economy from here? So the longer and future of cities, I'm still very positive about. One thing to realize about the donut effect is folks left the city centers, but they tended to go to the suburbs of the same city. So We've been tracking millions and millions of Americans through the United States Postal Service change of address data. And what you see is 60% of people that left city centers, say left center of New York or Washington or Chicago, moved out to the suburbs of the same cities. So in that sense, cities per se, the big conurbations are doing fine and they've not really lost activity. What's changed is it's moved out from the center into the suburbs. And that has generated some frictions and some challenges, more at the micro level. So the two things I worry most about, the first is public transit. So if you think of things like BART or the New York subway or the London Underground, these are very high fixed costs. You've got to pay for the train tracks and the trains and you know the staff. It's hard to vary that too much. But of course, if there's 30 40% less riders, you can lead into huge deficits. And somebody's got to pay for that. And that's one big worry where that's going to end up. 
The other thing is what's going to happen to a bunch of these kind of 1970s, 1980s big office buildings. Think of some building that was built in 1982. It has a massive floor print, huge, uh, you know, far from any windows. It's now looking 40 years old. It's not a fantastic building. Many of these buildings, no one really wants to lease anymore. If folks are coming in for hybrid, they want to lease what's called class A or trophy buildings, nice places, or they want to be out in the suburbs. And these office buildings, you think, well, maybe convert them to residential, but when they have huge footprints, which are far from any windows, it's hard to do that. So you're left with these buildings thinking, you know, what am I going to do with them? And right now there's a rising vacancy rate with these buildings. They may even have negative value because they're so expensive to destroy. It's not clear it's worth the cost to redevelop them. So that's a second issue, kind of a blight on certain parts of the center of cities with a whole bunch of huge floor print, kind of ugly 1970s, 1980s buildings that lie vacant. And as we know, vacant properties tend to be in you know, hot spots for crime and cause issues around them. Lots to chew on there, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Tom, thanks very much for having me on. So, Alice, Mike, it sounds to me like remote work is out, but hybrid work is probably here to stay. And as Nick alluded to, hybrid working does set a limit on how far people can really move away from their employer. So moving to another city entirely or deep into the countryside is probably not going to work for most people. I do also think it's worth noting that in cities like New York, for instance, there are tentative signs of a return of residents to inner cities. And those places do offer their residents a lot more than just a short commute, whether that's cafes or nightlife or various cultural activities. Now, all that said, I think simply waiting for things to eventually return to the way they were before pandemic would, at this stage, probably be somewhat foolish. But what about you both? What are your reflections so far? I was struck by the statistic Nick said about productivity losses from fully remote work. A 10% productivity drop is a lot. Most economies, especially developed ones, can only hope to churn out about a 1% or 2% annual productivity growth rates. In Europe, it's probably even lower than that. And so... In a world in which everyone went fully remote, if that estimate is even vaguely correct, you'd essentially knock living standards back by almost a decade. You can make the case that productivity measures aren't capturing the utility that people derive from being fully remote and getting to live wherever they want. There's obviously always the famous JFK speech that says uh, output metrics cannot measure the strength of our marriages or the joy of children playing. But uh, I still found that pretty staggering. And it does indicate that what he was saying about the donut effect is probably more likely than a world in which we're all fully remote. I've always thought that speech was just too pessimistic about our uh, ability to improve output metrics personally. But I was really (laughs) interested in the stuff there on the financing of things like public transport and the viability of big commercial real estate in the center of cities and the sort of vulnerable pinnacles of decades of re-urbanization after the pandemic. And it, it may be that You know, long after we stop talking about the public health effects of the pandemic or the education effects or whatever it might be, we're probably still talking about these sort of effects on city centres. If you look at somewhere like Detroit, the slump in property values that started in the 1970s was a huge problem, even going into the first and second decade of the 21st century because the city took so much revenue from a property tax. It's no small part of the default that Detroit went through. 
Land value is also super important to everything because of the financing usually attached to them. You get a lot of businesses borrowing a lot of money backed by things like commercial property, really the land beneath the commercial property. So yeah, I find this all hugely interesting. And I think the ripple effects, we might not even be thinking right now about whether eventually you're going to end up hitting very hard indeed. Speaking of debts, we owe lots of you a huge debt of gratitude because thousands of listeners responded to our last survey. It really does help us know what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And if you were incredibly disappointed when that survey ended, we have another one for you to make the show even better. We've got a follow-up survey. If you have a few minutes, please, please, please go to economist.com forward slash podcast survey. That link is in the notes to this episode. After the break, we'll hear more about how cities came to play such an important role in our economy and what struggling cities like San Francisco need to do to get back in the game. But before that, just a quick reminder that you can read Economist articles for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription if you're not a subscriber already. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Before the break, we heard how the pandemic has reshaped the way we work and the toll that has taken on our cities. To hear more about the longer-term evolution of cities and to understand how they need to adapt, I spoke to Ed Glazer. He's the chair of the economics department at Harvard and one of the world's leading experts on urban economics. Ed, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Thank you so much for having me on. So cities today account for about 90% of America's economy. Can you just start by describing for us why cities are so vital to the modern economy? So the modern economy grew up around cities. At the start of the 19th century, cities served primarily as nodes on our global lattice of travel and trade. As America linked itself into the deep material wealth of the North American continent, we built a transportation network, first one based on water, canals that supplemented the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River system, and then one on rail. And it was the cities that grew up on that network that enabled the wealth of the American hinterland to be transferred to the markets of Europe, to be the markets of the East. But then, of course, as manufacturing grew in America, that industrial might then also happened in cities because it was the natural place to put factories, because it had access to the rail yard, because it had access to the goods that were coming in and had access to the transportation network that could take the industrial goods out. And the early 20th century was a great period of manufacturing explosion in cities like Detroit that excelled in producing vast amounts of ordinary goods for ordinary people throughout the globe. Over the last 70 years, cities have deindustrialized. And gradually, 
industries that produce services, particularly knowledge-intense services like finance, replaced industries that created goods. And those services, those industries clustered in cities because of the ability of cities to connect human beings, to enable them to learn from one another, to enable them to work with one another. And you've described cities in the past as a dance between technologies that pull people together and ones that push people away. Can you talk us through how the shape of cities has evolved over time in response to new technologies? Absolutely. So if we think about the earliest cities, they're by and large walking cities. As transportation became more and more efficient, as we attached steam engines to vehicles, that enabled cities to sprawl further. And since, of course, wheeled vehicles seemed to work a lot better when they had rails for them to run along, our cities became anchored by the main rail lines. And so up and down the core rail lines, density sprouted up. And the density that was the greatest, the office density, ended up being at the very heart of the city, often built around the original transportation technology. So if you think about New York City, its oldest business center is on Wall Street, right, which is near the old port that was the heart of the city going back to the colonial era. Its second central business district is built in Midtown, not because this era had extra bedrock. This is a a myth that Jason Barr of Rutgers has largely exploded, but because this was the southernmost point that the rail lines could come down. And of course, the other great urbanizing technology of the 19th century was the skyscraper, which is really the combination of two critical ideas, one of which is the steel frame, which just enabled buildings to soar far more cheaply and far more safely. And of course, the safety elevator, which was a key element in vertical transportation that enabled the height that so defines our mental images of cities today. Of course, in the 20th century, many of the innovations pulled us away from cities, like the automobile, the highway, the container ship, all of these things that made transportation so much cheaper and enabled people to spread out much more. Cars typically are point to point. And so they just enabled vast, low density living throughout American exurbs. And so our cities came to feel totally differently. And what is your view on the impact that the COVID pandemic and the subsequent rise in remote working will have on cities over the long term? I think that the long term is likely to be much more of a blip. I think by and large, the ability to do things remotely is a blessing, not a curse. It is certainly true that it is causing disruption in the short run. And it may well be the case that, in fact, a few large office markets in this world, particularly those that are monocultures, are overbuilt. That sort of vast office core has come to define cities like New York and Chicago. And consequently, New York and Chicago are going to have to do a bit more to rethink how to use those spaces. So we need to make it easier to have multi-use neighborhoods throughout cities. And we need to think about how to repurpose some of the structures within our traditional central business districts. So other than the repurposing of office spaces, what actions do you think those cities should be taking to get themselves back on track? So San Francisco, Seattle, the highest human capital cities in America, right, were flying very high before COVID because those skills were a tremendous source of urban vitality in the pre-pandemic period. And there's still a tremendous source of economic vitality in the post-pandemic field. But education levels were strongly associated with remote work. Now, that remote work may have stopped people in San Francisco from dying, but it means downtown feels bad. 
And the problems of remote work are only compounded by the fact that Seattle and San Francisco in particular adopted views that, you know, high levels of urban crime in the city store were entirely fine. And we just didn't want to have anything that could suggest policing overreach. Going forward, I think, again, Seattle is going to need to think about some degree of office repurposing, probably San Francisco as well. But job one right now is to make their urban downtown safe. Right. That's the first thing is to to make sure the knowledge workers feel they can go back to the office without having to run through an open air fentanyl market. This is the central thing. Safe streets are the second most important job of city governments after clean water. This is what those governments need to focus on and they need to focus on it now. Ed, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Mike, Alice, what do you make of what you've heard? Yeah, I think what Ed Glazer said towards the end there about human capital really gets to the centre of why this is all really interesting to me. I think if you'd been around in the middle of the 20th century and had someone arrive in a time machine and explain to you all the changes to technology in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, particularly around digital communications, you might well have come to think that cities must have already declined in importance, right? Because it's so much easier for people to communicate over a large distance. Why would people cram themselves into these often cramped and expensive places? Why would they spend hours commuting every day in and out? They could just be at home and they can communicate almost as well from there. And that hasn't happened at all. And as Tom gets that, obviously cities increased in their importance throughout the late 20th century. And I think There's an element of this that is very hard to measure, but these intellectual agglomeration effects are actually very powerful and very important. And even with the sort of bump in the road that you've seen through the pandemic and the changes that you've seen through the pandemic, that fundamental force of people in the same industry and particularly people working at the very forefront of a new technology or a new idea or a new way of doing business or anything like that are always going to want to rub shoulders with each other, not just see each other over Zoom. So I think there are elements here that it's really, really tough to get away from. I am interested in seeing how it all develops and whether it turns out that for the first time that sort of thing is is wrong. But it just strikes me that with some of this stuff, if there was going to be a big move away from cities as the main way of organizing economic and industrial activity, I would think that we would have seen a big element of it already. Yeah, I think that is an excellent point. I find the slippery slope elements of this the most fascinating. You know, I think on the way up, as cities got denser and denser, and those sort of powerful agglomeration effects you're talking about became even more apparent, you know, it does become self-perpetuating in one direction. The more people move, the more amenities there are of living in that kind of space. But on the way out, if cities do hollow out, you can get those same problems working in reverse. So you get problems with vacancies in buildings, which can be scary and criminogenic. You deter people from moving back to city centres. And it did feel as though we'd really moved away from that high crime, dangerous stereotype of sort of 1980s Gotham and inner cities being like that. But in San Francisco in particular, elements of that have returned. And that is adding something of a push factor from cities as well. 
couple of months ago, I went to Seattle and I interviewed Glenn Kelman, who is the CEO of Redfin, the uh, real estate firm. And he said that he felt like there were two American dreams in the US. And there was the inner city, high rise, dense living, walkable amenities, sort of American dream. And there was the suburban two car American dream. And he said that he felt like the suburban dream had won. And that basically it was over for that sort of very dense living. And I think I I understand elements of that, given some of the ways in which inner cities like San Francisco have declined. But I agree with you, Mike. I think the jury is still out on quite how we'll live in the future. Yeah, that idea of the two American dreams, Alice, is really fascinating. So Richard Florida, who's uh, written a lot about cities over the years, talks about this idea of a creative class, which is the educated knowledge workers that really drive economic activity in today's economy. And he's done oodles of research showing how these workers gravitated towards gentrifying inner city areas over the past few decades because of the more diverse and creative lifestyle that they offered compared to the suburbs. So very much falling into the first of those two camps you were describing. But I do think there's a real risk that cities which jeopardize that lifestyle of dense urban living, not just by failing to keep crime under control, but also by letting public services like transport and education atrophy and failing to address unaffordable housing, could find themselves losing their appeal for those creative class workers. So I would say I'm very optimistic about cities in general. I think there's lots of reasons, as you were saying, Mike, to believe that they will continue to exert this kind of magnetic pull on the economy. But there's also a very real possibility that some cities could find themselves at the very least permanently weakened if they don't get on top of some of the issues that they're currently facing. And while turning offices into apartment buildings is, of course, going to help, I think it's just going to take a lot more than that. Uh, But to conclude on a, a more optimistic note, I think there are some positive signs. So San Francisco earlier this year signed off on a plan to build 10,000 new homes a year for the next eight years. So lots more still to do, of course, but at least there's some tentative signs that they are starting to head in the right direction. Better late than never, eh? Yeah, I'm also sort of talking my book here. I want to live in a city. I want the cities to function. I don't want to live on the sort of remote working farm. So fingers crossed it all works out. And with that, it's time to turn to our stats of the week. Alice, do you want to kick us off? Sure. My stat of the week is $31,000 per capita, which is the per capita income in PPP chain dollars for both Greece and Turkey. Turkey has been having something of a post-pandemic boom in its economy, despite all of the headlines about inflation and exchange rate issues. And uh, Greece, which was once two or three times richer than uh, Turkey, has uh, essentially gone sideways for a decade or more. And uh, the two countries have finally drawn level in terms of their uh, GDP per capita, which is probably pretty galling for the people of Greece. Now, I should know better than to get involved in a dispute between Greece and Turkey on these numbers. But I I knew this was coming. I saw that Alice was going to say $31,000. And I am a little bit sceptical of that figure. Not that it's wrong in and of itself, But I was looking at the World Bank figures earlier in the week, and I believe that of any large economy Turkey has had in the last decade or so, the biggest disparity between growth at market exchange rates and growth in PPP terms, which again, doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but I do find it very, very interesting. I think there may be some figure in the middle there that tells the story between the sort of nominal collapse and this apparent purchasing power boom. 
I will avoid inflaming tensions any further and say that my stat of the week is nine minutes. It's the summer solstice this week. And I was interested in the gap between the longest and shortest day of the year in Singapore, which, as most of you will know, is almost bang on the equator, but not quite on the equator. And the gap between the longest and shortest day is nine minutes. Yeah. So not a huge amount of seasonal change here, admittedly. Yeah. Living in Singapore is basically sort of Groundhog Day, but I I hope you enjoy (laughs) your extra nine minutes. Well, uh, my stat of the week is also sunshine related, sort of. So my figure is 200 milliwatts. Now, that is a very small amount of energy for those familiar with such measurements, but it is significant because it is the amount of power that was successfully beamed down from space by a satellite a few days ago. Now, this sounds like science fiction, but I promise you it's not. So scientists have been exploring for a while now the idea of harvesting solar power in space and then sending it back down to Earth through microwaves. And the benefit of that, obviously, is you don't need to worry about space constraints for all those solar panels back on Earth. And this experiment has shown that it might just work, which blew my mind. It sounds like the kind of thing that will ultimately be the plot of a Bond movie, you know? (laughs) I was literally just about to say, did you notice that none of those stats were miserable? They're all either neutral or positive stats, but all that Alice can think about (laughs) is how we'll all be killed by the space microwave. (laughs) We are going to be fried by the space microwave. Come on, space microwave? That's not a cheerful stat. Yes, well, I'm not quite sure how thin the line is between sending microwave energy down to Earth and shooting laser beams, but uh, hopefully those are quite different things. And on that optimistic or maybe pessimistic note, all that's left to do is thank Nick Bloom and Ed Glazer. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Tingley Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist.